we can come together, God, and worship you in spirit and in truth. God, we thank you that we have an opportunity to open the scriptures. We know that the scriptures guide and lead us to Christ, that the purpose of the scriptures is so that we might know you, that we might see you, that we might enjoy you. And so, Lord, as we come to the scriptures today, as we continue our study of First John, we ask that you would help us to see Christ. We see him in all of his glory. It will bring joy to our heart and transformation to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, stand as we read God's Word today. It'll be 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's word. You may be seated. You know, sometimes you ask, what is the, what is the goal of good leadership? You know, what, what is the goal of being over people? What is the goal of having others reside under your care? And the goal is, is you, you, you want people to flourish, right? You want people to flourish in their in their character, in their gifts. You want people to flourish in their talents and their pursuits. And so you want to you seek what is best for others. I mean, that's, that's what the goal of leadership is for people who are under you. But sometimes it's complicated. Sometimes it's, you know, even as we see now with those COVID-19, things become very complicated when you think about what does it mean to care for those who are under you? What does it mean to care for those who are at risk to get this? What does it mean to care for those who don't have jobs anymore because of this? And so it, it gets complicated when you start talking about care and loving others. And, and yet we want to root others in the, in the richest of places. <laughs> we want to help people find the right soil so that they blossom, right? So that they bloom, so that they reach their, their fullest potential. And in this section of Scripture, John's writing to anyone and to everyone who he considers to belong to the people of God. He, uh, he doesn't make any um, hierarchy in God's kingdom. He, he wants all of God's people to know that he cares for them and he desires what is best for them. And so in this section of Scripture, uh, John is writing to, to those who believe that they are Christians, believe that they are God's people. And again, he's writing to the old, to the young, to male, to female, to Jew, whatever their experience is as far as their relationship with God. John says, I care for you. I care for your life. I care for your well-being. I care for your growth. I care for the fact that, that your life may be hard or you're struggling to walk with Jesus. 
And so John wants those that he is talking to to understand that he cares for them. And so John continues, just like he will all throughout the book of 1 John, he'll continue to root people in who they are in Christ. He'll continue to tell them these massive truths of who they are. And it's no different in this section of Scripture. John's going to start here in verse 12 through 14, and he's going to help his audience understand what the gospel benefits are. He wants them to understand what Christ has secured for them, and he wants them to understand what Christ has accomplished for them. And so again, I encourage you, as, we, as, we, as Ben will start off next week and continue with this, look at what John always wants God's people to understand. He wants them to understand what Christ has done on their behalf. He wants them to understand what Christ has accomplished for them. And John understands that in doing that, in helping them see what Christ has done for them, that he is loving God's people well. So the first thing that John wants those under his care to understand is that their sins are forgiven. But their sins are not forgiven because they're righteous. Their sins are not forgiven because they have it all together. We see there in the verse, it says that their sins are forgiven because of Christ's namesake. And so John is wanting those that he is teaching and those he is preaching to to understand that their salvation, that their relationship with God is all of grace. It's all of grace. It's not because of anything they have done. It's not because of any merit that they have achieved. It is simply because of what Christ has accomplished on their behalf. You see, it's not that just Jesus' name is instrumental in salvation, but it is Jesus who is the primary cause of our salvation. So his name is not just an instrumental, but Jesus himself is the very cause of us being in relationship with God. Scripture says several times that salvation is found in no one else, that Jesus is the only entryway to be in friendship with God. That Jesus is the only entryway to experience this grace that John wants the people that he's writing to to understand. There's no other name under heaven whereby which we must be saved. And John is hoping that that cultivates in these humility. He's hoping that this cultivates in God's people gratitude. He's hoping that this gives them a confidence they can be assured that they know the Lord. Secondly, John wants them to know that, they, that you know Him who is from the beginning, that because, because of their union with Christ, that now they have union with God. Because of their nature of being in relationship with Jesus, now they're in relationship with the Father. They have a friendship with God not based on some secret knowledge, right? Last week we talked about the Gnostics. Not because of some secret knowledge, but they have relationship with God because of Christ's work on the cross. And then thirdly, John wants to, to begin by helping those he is writing to understand that sin no longer has mastery over them. Because of what Jesus has done, they are now free from sin. That Christ's death, that His life, that His resurrection is now my life, is now my resurrection. And so when Christ talks about crushing the head of Satan, it's as though God crushed Satan's head on my behalf. 
One of the things that is so neat about the Scriptures is they're so connected. This is actually sort of referencing back to Genesis 3, right? When Adam failed to do, that Adam being our representative, that Adam representing the whole human race, failed to overcome temptation. He failed to say no to sin. He failed to continue to bend the knee to God. So in doing so, he did not remain faithful in his relationship. But John wants the people that he's writing to to understand that Jesus is the new Adam. And that Jesus on their behalf has secured their salvation. That there is no longer any sin to be paid for. That there is a relationship, a genuine relationship with God based on Christ. And because of that, Satan no longer has possession of us. You see, John understands this one thing, and we, as God's church, need to understand this. That understanding who we are, understanding our identity in Christ, and understanding what Christ has done for us, and understanding that that's rooted in God's grace through Christ, changes everything about how we live. One of the things I've been doing recently, and you know, I grew up on Mike Tyson and watching him fight. I mean, this is a, a young kid. We used to you know, watch and love his fights. And I've been going back and listening to some of the documentaries about his life and him sharing some things. And man, it's, it's some of the most eye-opening things about humanity and about life and this guy, Cus D'Amato, was this old man, and he was, he was an immigrant that had come into the United States, and he basically, I think it was Brooklyn, he was run out of Brooklyn because of the mob, because the mob was so entangled with boxing and stuff, and so he, he moved to another location in town because they threatened his life, and he met Tyson as a 13-year-old kid, and he was an old man, he was probably 65 to 70 when he met him, and he just began to, to love him. And one of the things that Tyson says is he said, you know, one of the things that was interesting about him is that he actually cared about people, but he was also a person of principle. And he said, that radically changed who, who I was. And he said, in fact, he said, he would always continually tell me that I was going to be the world champion. He said, from the time I was 13 until he died and passed away, he said, he never would let me believe anything except I was a champion. And that's what John wants us to understand as God's people. He wants us to understand what Christ has done on our behalf. He wants us to understand what Jesus has done for us, what he's accomplished for us. And John's not going to let us believe anything different than Jesus Christ has made you holy and righteous and has justified you. And because of that, we should live differently. And so as we come to verse 15, it's a command. It's a command, right? Do not love the world or the things of the world. So John spends these first three or four verses telling us about our identity, telling us about what Christ has done for us, telling us what Christ has accomplished for us in hopes that we will begin to believe who we really are. And then he comes in and he says, Now listen, don't love the world or the things of the world. 
Now, throughout history, just to be honest with you, the church has really mucked this up a lot. They've really messed this up in a lot of ways as far as what does it mean to love the world? What does it mean to love the things of the world? And so I think it's important that we get that right, that we understand what it means to love the world. And so I'm going to give you a a few ways that we as the church have sort of swung and missed throughout history, and I'm sure you can sort of identify with some of those. So what it means to love the world is not Pharisaism, okay? It's not being self-righteous. It's not being the conservative elitist. You know, the Pharisees, they were strong in the roots of Judaism, but yet they lived around a lot of pagans. And so one of the ways that they would sort of guard their religion and guard themselves is they would make up these endless rules about what you could drink, what you could eat, how many steps you could take on the Sabbath. They would distance themselves from people in society who were considered unclean, maybe prostitutes, maybe tax collectors. They wouldn't have anything to do with those people. Anyone who maybe had leprosy or had a disease or was disreputable, And so they were always sort of adding to God's law. They were sort of always adding more and more to what God really commanded, but they always missed the spirit of God's law. They always missed the heart behind it. And Jesus had some pretty pretty devastating things to say to the Pharisees. Unfortunately, most people who go to church nowadays take that route. Uh, They take the route of the Pharisee because they feel like that's what it means not to love the world. But listen to what Jesus says about them. He says they're whitewashed tombs. They clean up the outside and they look really good, but inside they're just full of dead bones. He said they refuse to come into God's kingdom, but the thing that's even worse than that is they prohibit others from coming into God's kingdom. He says, not only do they tie heavy burdens on people, but they themselves don't even keep their own commands. So one of the ways that we as a church have misrepresented what it means to love the world and the things of the world is we've taken the route of the Pharisee. Asceticism is the, is the second way that we've missed it, and asceticism is just denying the physical world. That the more you deny your flesh, the less you... involved in like the the things of the world, maybe discipline of celibacy or fasting or harsh treatment of the body, the more you do this, the more likely God's going to hear you or the more more in favor with God that you're going to be. So it's sort of this Greek dualism, right? That the, the physical world is bad and the spiritual world is good. But we know from the scriptures that that's not True. 1 Timothy 4 4 says this. It says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And then Colossians 2 18 says this. It says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. They fail to hold to Christ. And then, thirdly, the way that we as God's church have missed and misdefined what it means to love the world is we've come, sort of become monastic. We sort of withdraw from the world, right? We sort of, you know, maybe, maybe we only listen to Christian music 
only wear Christian t-shirts, maybe only talk Christian lingo. We sort of get in our holy huddle. We spend so much time inside the walls of the church that we don't even know how to have a conversation with someone who's, who's an unbeliever. And so John wants us to understand that's not what he means by loving the world and the things of the world. He's not talking about being a Pharisee. He's not talking about you know, getting into our holy huddle, becoming, you know, sort of taking the sacred and secular. But what he's talking about when he talks about loving the things of the world is he's talking about our hearts. He's talking about what has our heart, what has our affections. You see, the problem with those three approaches is they're so external. They deal so much with the external but they never move to the root of the problem, which is our own sinful hearts. In fact, the nature of the gospel is this. Is that the nature of the gospel is that it always brings you back to Jesus. The gospel always brings us back to our need for Christ. You know, one of the things is if you sort of take these take these three roads, they basically provide sort of a false savior, sort of a false hope, a false righteousness. And again, they don't get to the heart of sin. Verse 15b says this, listen, it says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, you can't serve two masters. If you, if you love the world, then you can't love God. If you love the things of the world, you don't love God. So John knows that it's critical to define what it means to love the world and the things of the world. So this is what John tells us. Verse 16 says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. One of the things that John does is immediately he talks about the desires of the flesh. And we talk about our desires, right? Our longings, our cravings. Those are often so hard to get our hands around, right? The external, we can, we can understand that, right? Don't drink, don't smoke, don't hang out. But when we start talking about desires and we start talking about our motives and we start talking about our intentions... Those things are a lot tougher. But this particular thing, talking about the desires of our flesh, what that means is the cravings of sinful man, what, like what the body sort of hankers for, what our body really wants. And it's talking about the physical appetites and the cravings sort of going wild, like gluttony and greed and addiction. Like that's, that's what John is talking about. What it means to love the world is that your, your heart sort of craves and has gone after these things as your, as your king, as your lord. And then secondly, he says, in the, the lust of the eyes, and this is more talking about sort of coveting the things that the world has to offer. Maybe it's coveting status, or maybe it's cut coveting certain clothes or a diamond necklace or a, a rare painting. And so its aim is sort of to, to lure us into these things and to make these things our treasure, to, to make these things what is ultimate in our lives. 
You know, much of the advertising that goes on today in our culture, basically it's sort of geared around this idea of trying to make us long to possess things, right? The new car, (laughs) trying to get our hearts to covet these things and want and crave them. And so it's a worldliness which indulges sort of the whims and fancies of the extravagant. It's sort of like the old saying, trying to keep up with the Joneses. That's what John is saying here. It means to love the world. Is that you sort of are in pursuit of these, this status. So, so not only do you crave the physical appetites of the world, but you, you long for these status. You long for this recognition. You long for these things. And then thirdly, he says the pride of life is it's like the boasting of what you have or the boasting of what you've accomplished in life or the boasting of what you've, you've been able to achieve with your life. And basically, John wants us to understand that sin is a giving of our hearts and a giving of our affections and our souls for the things of the world. It's sort of setting all these things up as our treasure, right? It's sort of, sort of setting all these things up as what we're running after, and what we spend our time on, and what we spend our money on, and our energy on. I guess you could sort of say it's the, it's the pursuits of our soul. And we have to be careful, right? Because Job was a wealthy man, right? Abraham was considered to be wealthy, So it's not about having things. It's about what is my heart bent towards? It's about cravings. It's about desires. It's about our affections. Like, where are my affections? Are my affections for God's glory or are my affections for my glory? So John is trying to help them understand whether you're a preacher or a coach or a doctor, or a school teacher. Sometimes it's hard for us to put our finger on what our true desires and motives are. But John says it's tremendously important because you can't love God and you can't love the world. You can't love the glory of God and love your own glory. And so again, John begins this passage by wanting people to understand, wanting these Christians to understand who they are in Christ. That Jesus has redeemed you from these passions. That Jesus has redeemed you from the the flesh, the desires of the flesh. That He's redeemed you from the evil one. That He's redeemed you from this way of life. He's redeemed you from this way of slavery. And He's brought you into His family. And he's saying, don't run after the things that pass away. Listen at verse 17. It says, the world, it's, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Materialism is sort of a foolish philosophy, isn't it? I mean, we all, if we're honest, we get sucked into it, every one of us. But isn't, isn't it foolish? Like everything that's here that we see right now will one day will not be here. 
Like every, everything that Ryan builds in his life, if I build my own house or I build my own castle, whatever it may be, one day it will cease to be. But for some reason, sometimes we as God's people get sucked into these physical appetites. We get sucked into these things and we can easily get sucked into this philosophy of materialism. Where we're no longer living for eternity. We're no longer living for the things that are eternal. And it's especially hard in America, right? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, there is a lot of bling in America. And so John, right, he loves the people of God. And he wants them to understand that to love the things of the world, right, means ultimate destruction. But to love the things of God is ultimately to gain everything. John loves us well, right? Because John wants what's best for us. He wants what's best for us, and that's what it means to love people, is to want what is best. And so John says, look, you are the people of God. This is who you are. Christ has forgiven your sins. You're in relationship with God. You have friendship with God. You have conquered the evil one. Now don't run after the things of the world, for they are no longer your master. They are no longer your king. And if that's not enough for you, remember this, the things of the world will soon pass away. And they will be no more. So do not invest your time there. Do not invest your passions there. Invest your passions in God's glory and loving others. That's what we talked about last week. Jim Elliott says this, and you guys all, y'all could probably all quote this little saying. But he is no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So I encourage this church, encourage one another, encourage myself. Continually tell one another who we are in Christ. And continually encourage one another not to love the world or the things of the world. Because we're in relationship with God. Let's pray together.